The Highlander Podcast is brought to you by Outdoor Product Design and Development, a four-year undergraduate degree focused on training the next generation of product creators for the sports and outdoor industries. Learn more at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. On this episode of the Highlander Podcast, we continue our History of Gear series with Bruce Johnson. We discuss outdoor pioneer Jerry Cunningham, the creation of Jerry Mountain Equipment, and his lasting influence on the industry. Welcome back, everyone. This is Chase uh, with another episode of our History of Gear series. And again, joined with me today is Bruce Johnson, a gear historian and creator of the History of Gear project, uh, joining me virtually again. Uh, thanks for Thanks for joining. Uh, excited today to, to talk a little bit about the company Jerry and the influence of that company on, on the industry that we know today. So thanks for joining. Sure. I love to talk about this. I do have a little bit of a preface about the whole scene around the company Jerry, which carried a few different names. Jerry Mountain Sports encapsulated it a little better than just Jerry, but uh, in the history of gear, <clears throat> there were some real pioneers, and Jerry was among them. And in 1992, the outdoor retailers group, which has been around for many years and still is, put together a special edition, you might say in Reno where they usually met and they brought in what they felt were the 12 greatest gear pioneers. They called them pioneers of the industry. And there were 12 of them that they, they identified and that was in 92. So it's interesting to go through these names. There's Jerry Cunningham and his wife, Ann, Allison Roy Hollybar, Mr. L.L. Bean, Jack Stevenson of Warm Light, Lloyd Anderson, REI founder, George Rudolph, Ski Hut and Trailwise, Dick Kelty of Kelty Packs, Colin Fletcher, who uh, popularized backpacking, Eddie Bauer, Jim Whitaker, Everest climber, Al Steck, Ski Hut designer and climber. And the selection there is pretty broad. And there's names there that modern people listening to this probably aren't very familiar with. But in future podcasts, we'll cover a number of these. So I just wanted to put that in there that uh, Jerry Cunningham uh, was identified by outdoor retailers as one of the 12 great pioneers in the industry. 
That's it's nice to know that the industry at that time um, spent the time to recognize those individuals with Jerry and Ann Cunningham included in that list. It's it's just nice to know that they've gotten the appreciation that that they deserve in that respect, um, given that title. Um, do you? They do were you think, flown out to Reno and wined and dined. And, Jerry and, told me the whole story. And we'll get into that a little bit. That was probably the last, one of the last times that he was really involved with the brand itself. He wasn't working for the company at that time. Um, but it seems like that was kind of the last, one of the last times that he was really tied back to the company and in that kind of a formal way. But yes, yeah, that's true. Um, well, can we go back to the beginning a little bit? I, I think that's a, that's a nice bookend, right? Um, to kind of see where he ended up, he he and his wife Anne, um, kind of the recognition that they deserved. How did it all start? Um, wh- you know, where where did Jerry and Anne grow up, and and where did this love of the outdoors come from for them? You know, what what was the era and the time period that they were growing up in? They were in upstate New York, and upstate New York was maybe one of the very first seed beds in the U.S. for downhill skiing. The area gets a lot of snow, as you might know. And Jerry was involved. He was just interested in that subject, skiing, and he did a little himself. Uh, He designed ski skins out of, like, carpet and uh, would sell them to skiers who were trying to get up and down the slopes on these six foot long wooden skis. So why did he do that? Well, he was in an area that was more of a outdoor area with some mountains and he liked being outdoors, right? Um, His father was a um, studio photographer who actually invented uh, some early machines that created photographs like the modern, you know, machines you can plug your your thumb drive into. And so Jerry learned photography, but he also learned at his mother's knee sewing and got good at that, which then led him to designing a pack in 1938 when he was still in high school. And his concept was to compartmentalize the load against the back so it didn't turn into just a kidney buster. It was a little pack that was a teardrop design and became, of course, extremely popular and ripped off by everybody throughout the next several decades. Um, The whole progress that he might have like started his own little company or something in 1939 or 40, got interrupted by World War II when he got drafted. And so he went into the service and got himself into the 10th Mountain Division, which was partly based on the fact he already was familiar with skiing and had grown up in a snowy type climate. So what most people don't realize, he was a uh, conscientious objector. So he ended up as a medic in Italy and 
Throughout the war, he'll tell stories of how he would lie in his sleeping bag, cursing the, the terrible gear and dreaming of better gear and had in his mind his company logo. He was going to start a company. He's going to have to wait till after the war. But he, he dreamed of a logo that had his name written on the bottom and a mountain in the background shaped like that. And interestingly, when they did finally establish their company in the mountains of Colorado, right out the front door, there was a mountain called Satu in the Rockies that looked just like what he had imagined, this Sawtooth Mountain that he'd always imagined in the background. So that's kind of how he got going. So did kind of going back a little bit, there's a lot there. Um, you know, when he was growing up in New York, um, it, it seemed like he was just kind of learning. It was this combination of things kind of came together, you know, this being outside getting involved in skiing, um, learning from his mom how to sew. It's just kind of this perfect storm of skills and, you know, these things that help prepare him to become, um, you know, the, the creator of an outdoor, of an outdoor brand. Um, do you, was he sketching out um, that logo at that time when he was deployed? Do you happen to know, when was that first sketch of the logo created? Well, I was told he had sketches, but they got lost by the time he got mustered out. Mm, so he had sketches in New York before he, he got sent out? Mm, no. Uh, what he told me was that he had gotten out of the service and those sketches oh. and notebooks just got lost. So he kind of started from scratch again. Uh, but he had it clear in his mind what he wanted to do. Right. And so when he got back to the States, he lived with his parents, uh, he and his wife, Anne. Um, and he created, probably on his mother's sewing machine, uh, a whole selection of gear that he felt would be the complete outfit, you know, pack, sleeping bag, etc. that would be used in a catalog that he would then be selling and starting his company. So early in 1946, uh, he had always dreamed of uh, living a self-sufficient life in the mountains. He'd actually been kind of kicked out of his university because of that. Um, his advisor thought he was, um, incredibly unrealistic to think that he could go live in the mountains and make gear. And, uh, <laughs> where, where, where was he going to school at the time? Um, uh, uh, one of these more upscale universities that's been around for a long time in the Northeast. I'd have to go look for the name right now. It's escaping me, but it's on my website. We'll refer to that. So anyone who wants to see that can can look at the website in the show notes. Um, so really, you know, when he got back from the war, um, kind of the product lines that he envisioned, you know, eventually building out were really informed by the products he, he had used up to that point and the conditions that he he had faced, you know, these brutal conditions, you know, the 10th Mountain Division being that special force that that was trained for winter uh, winter and ma uh, mountain 
um, battles, right? Um, so he was really, uh, I, I imagine that kind of informed the products that he wanted to create. He wanted, like you said, he wanted to complete, uh, well, create that complete product line from, you know, apparel to packs, to tents, to stoves, eventually, uh, to climbing gear. He kind of wanted to do it all. And I imagine that's because of what he faced in the war, right. And the products that he was using there that he saw the deficiencies of. Yes, and um, you know I think it's important to note that the personality uh, of Jerry was always that of a creative, inventive person. I don't think you get to be a gear designer, and especially somebody who then goes on to try to start a whole company. Uh, without having that gene almost that you're creative, you're inventive. That's just who you are. Yeah. What, what were the other products at that time that were informing? I, I guess he had to, he had to be using products at that time. Growing up, he was skiing. He was using, using gear in the war. He was using military um gear at that time. And, and from what I understand, um, individuals like LL Bean and, and Eddie Bauer were educating the military on how to make gear. Um, what, what, what types of gear, what types of brands were around at that time that he would have been exposed to? I mean, he wasn't the first outdoor founder, right? Abercrombie and Fitch was around, which people, you know, now probably don't realize was an outdoor company when it started. L.L. Bean, Eddie Bauer. What were the brands at that time that he would have been interacting with? You know, truly there weren't many. Um, Abercrombie and Fitch basically were importers. Mm. So there you have the, the uh, European influence. So at the time, the gear, especially for backpacking and climbing, was really all coming out of Europe. Right. Well, REI, we know, REI really came out of that well, was really born out of that, right? People in the U.S. not having access to good gear, especially climbing equipment. And that's yeah, why it's, so. it's pretty well known that that ice axe was the, the first thing that they brought over from Europe and, and started buying those and selling them to people in the U.S., right? Yeah. Um, and the same was true in the Bay Area with the ski hut, which got going in the mid-30s. And basically, they weren't inventing their own gear. They were just importers. Right. Uh, L.L. Bean was making stuff that uh, didn't really apply a whole lot to, to backpacking and climbing, especially not to climbing. Uh, Eddie Bauer, uh, of course, with inventing, you might say, the first uh, down jacket kind of thing. Um, it's hard to know whether Jerry has not spoken uh, to me about having influence from any of those companies. Hmm. So that part's a, a little bit of a mystery. Um, he, Jerry, that is, was, as I said, a, a, an inventor. So um, he went um, his own way, followed his own light. Um, well, so I, imagine, I imagine companies at that time, it was so regional, right? I mean, it, kind of where he was in, in New York. 
probably only had access to to the companies that were operating in that area, right? Well, yes. Um, in the early history of Yurts, I was important to think about well, what was going on back then as far as companies being able to communicate with one another or know about each other's products. There was no internet. <laughs> there were no toll-free phone lines. Uh, there, there was, even in the earliest ages, there was not even television. So <clears throat> it was writing letters. And uh, the very early companies might have a mimeograph catalog, maybe, on a very small mailing list. But uh, boy, there wasn't much interchange in the very earliest days. Right. It seems like mail order catalogs were really the thing, right? I mean, we see, you know, we just, um, we just acquired for our, our, uh, our archive, the earliest Abercrombie and Fitch catalog. And it was 1904 or 1907. I just looked at it today, but um, so mail order catalogs were kind of the thing at that time. And, by the 30s, 40s, I imagine that was one of the predominant ways that people were buying gear. Uh, yeah. Um, although as far as actual companies that you would call backpacking or climbing companies, um, there weren't catalogs really until uh, places like uh, Holly Bar and Jerry started putting out catalogs in the uh, late forties or early fifties. Right. So maybe, maybe we can get into that a little bit. So he and Anne started to, to design their own packs, right. And it started with climbing. Um, they had, yeah. They had started uh, with, with a pack and branched out um, by the uh, early fifties. They were creating down sleeping bags mountaineering tents and of course packs um they became the major suppliers to some of the great expeditions of the uh, 1950s uh especially uh 1953 big expedition there uh to everest along with uh, eddie Barr course but um yeah that's kind of how it happened it's it's interesting the one thing that i noticed when i was digging into the history a little bit is they cranked out so many products um in such a short amount of time and and seemed to achieve a level of success that maybe you know when they were in it maybe it didn't seem like they were having you know were, were blowing up but just if you look at the timeline you know, 1945, 1946, they start sending out catalogs. And then um, by 1959, so in a relatively short amount of time, they have a partnership with the U.S. Air Force. Um, they'd already done, um, you know, the, the partnership to, to help Sir Edmund Hillary and the, and the team on the Mount Everest summit. Um, really a short amount of time that they had, they had worked on some really meaningful projects and done a lot. And then, you know, throughout that time, a lot of inventions being created. Um, you know, kind of going back to the beginning, it, it's, it's interesting. Do you mind telling a little bit how they got their first, um, their first addresses? I mean, mail orders being the big thing then, they needed, they needed addresses and they needed to send catalogs out. 
How did that come about? How did they get those first addresses to start sending out catalogs? Well, they they had a connection in the uh, ski industry and uh, just basically said, uh, would you be willing to send us your mailing list? We have some gear to sell. And lo and behold, they got a list and began sending out catalogs. And it, it just kind of mushroomed from there. And uh, by the time that uh, they were, let's say, six, eight years in, uh, they've become well well known by a whole lot of prominent mountaineers of the time. And those folks would be dropping by their little shop up in the mountains. And it got to the point by about 19. 60 that Jerry was uh, frustrated. He couldn't hardly work in his workshop anymore. All these people kept dropping by and interrupting his work. Uh, so <laughs> it's a success story that uh, began with just one guy, really. Uh, you know, Anne wasn't a designer. Uh, she was extremely supportive and uh, was raising their their children, their three children up there in the mountains. But uh, where was, was the company based at that time? Ward, Colorado. Ward, okay. Um, Tiny and, little place up in the mountains, up above Boulder. Wow. Um, it's so you know after they started sending out those those catalogs, there's kind of a, a time jump, right? From um, well, well, not really. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, the next year he started working on hard gear. He wasn't satisfied enough to just do, um, do bags and soft product. Again, he kind of wanted to do the whole gambit and redesigned the, the modern carabiner in 1947. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about that? Oh, he tells such fun stories about carabiners and pitons that he was designing up there in his little, stone workshop up in the mountains um, that he'd put in, what did he say? Like $5 worth of labor, labor to produce, let's say a carabiner and then he'd sell it for a buck. Um, he was very interested in mountain safety. He was a climber himself, not a big name climber, but you know, he had the cred and he knew what he needed and what climbers needed. Uh, he just was as out. I keep saying he's an inventor and an innovator. It's just in his his bones. Did did he learn how to climb when he was in the tenth mountain division? Was that a part of the training? Was I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of these these guys had to be skiers and mountaineers. Um, is was that part of the training at that yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. He certainly didn't get it uh, uh, in New York. Right. Okay. And then I, I was going to ask this connection with Ski Pol, uh, Patrol magazine. Do you happen to know if that was that a tenth mountain division connection? Because it seemed like a lot of these these guys, they came back from the war, founded ski resorts, went on to work for ski magazines, um, started ski shops. Um, do, do you happen to know if that was a connection that he made during that time? He had plenty of connections uh, to the 10th Mountain. and uh, One of his main uh, uh, business partners became a guy that was also in the 10th Mountain. Uh, um now, Camp Hale was the 10th Mountain headquarters in the mountains of Colorado. And uh, his daughter, uh, Penny Cunningham, was writing up a whole 
series of stuff about Camp Hale. She called it the Camp Hale days and talking about all the personalities and people in and out of there and, and just stories, stories, what happened there. Unfortunately, she met a sort of an untimely end and all that got lost. Oh, wow. But um, yeah, there was a lot that was a, a real seminal thing in the start of the outdoor uh, gear industry was the 10th Mountain Division and it having a big base in Colorado. And it led to a lot of Colorado businesses and companies. Right. Well, we're planning on having a future episode just all about um, that that group um, because they're so influential to the industry. Um, kind of going back to the to the carabiner design, um, that really can you talk about how influential that was? Because you know, if you look at any cheap throwaway carabiner that you'd see on your backpack, or you know, the giveaway swag carabiners. Um, they're all that design, right? They're all that shape. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? Well, it became the classic shape. There mm-hmm. are others, of course, uh, that have been of more modern invention uh, and some for specialized uses. But uh, yeah, um, that was one of Jerry's things. Now, I, I cannot leave out Hollybar, though, right? which we'll have to get to because in parallel time, um, Roy Hollybar also had a local blacksmith named Bob Bruning, uh, who was busy creating and hammering out in his shop uh, piton hammers and pitons and carabiners. So uh, there was some real parallel developments going on. But Jerry, uh, you know, clearly uh, he was pretty much the beginner sometimes a little more sometimes a little less when it comes to climbing equipment yeah and and other things like like a really good mountain tent so really bringing that performance that maybe he saw was lacking in in the military products that he was using he he really focused in on the need for performance yeah i think that's where he got that was he saw the deficiencies and realized we need product that performs because I've been in these harsh environments um, and there's people who are going to buy stuff that, you know, if it helps them be a little bit more comfortable in these tough, tough, uh, tough environments. Yes. <laughs> he spoke uh, of misery in, in uh, some of the gear provided there uh, to the 10th mountain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've heard the stories of, of people wearing, wool socks and and there's kind of a famous picture of of one of the one of the soldiers you know having to well i guess just socks being frozen to feet and some of them having to thaw out their feet and socks and it just it just kind of miserable conditions is you know from what i've heard in my my little little study but maybe we can talk a about some more of the inventions that that he worked on during this during this time again in quick succession um you know from the the really the company sending out those first catalogs, 1945, 46 carabiner designed in 47. Now, did he get a patent for that? I imagine he did, right? Uh, Jerry was kind of notorious for not usually getting patents. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Yeah. um, Another real famous designer, uh, Jack Stevenson, uh, also kind of scorned patents and 
basically never got them and uh, a lot of people ripped off his designs and he knew it and sometimes it bothered him and sometimes not jerry invented in the early 50s was the cord lock right yeah the little nylon clamp that yeah. is everywhere so how did he come about that well it's just his inventive mind again yeah how do you create something like that in your garage in the 50s that's what i want to know do you do you happen to know what what that experience was like did he share a little bit about just the experience of prototyping and creating this stuff in his yard? Or did he work with other people? You mentioned this blacksmith to help with the climbing equipment. Did he have someone else who was helping him you no, know, work um, on stuff like the cord lock? No, he, he was, he was, he was like a Leonardo da Vinci or something. He, uh, he really invented a whole bunch of stuff just sitting there in his mountain cabin um, looking at, a need, maybe like I'm tired of tying little knots in this backpack to close it up. How could I do that better? Oh, a little spring and oh, a little block of plastic, two blocks, a little, you know, I'll try this out on my drill press and there it is. So again, just so many little inventions and, and things that you probably just have floating around. Um, maybe it's, it's those little things that, that go unnoticed you know, again, the industry recognized him for his influence, but day to day, you know, I would think most people wouldn't know who, no, actually I know most people wouldn't know where the cord lock came from. Um, our, our industry could do, do more to, to share that, um, and share his, his legacy. Um, not saying the cord lock is Jerry's legacy, but, but it's a piece of it, right? Piece of that puzzle. So kind of moving on from there, again, the breadth of what he was able to do from inventing, you know, new products, um, hardware, um, to again, two years later after the cord lock coming out, um, you know, working with that first team to, to, to climb Everest. Did you get to talk to him a little bit about that? And, and what was that experience like working on product that would need to perform in, in some of the most extreme environments? What was that like for them? And, and what products did he create for that expedition he created their mountain tent they had a three-man version and a two-man version uh basically modified a-frame designs that uh were not only sewn with meticulous care and tons of extra reinforcements but also incorporated wands in the sides to stiffen them up there was even a design uh, of a ridge pole to prevent the ends of the tent from being smashed back and forth by heavy wind. Uh, he lived in a, a, a harsh mountain environment at 8,000 feet. So all he had to do was step out of his door to test out some of this stuff. And he did with his family. There were a bunch of family stories about how the, uh, all the kids helped product test. And of course, once he got well known enough to have famous climbers, coming by saying, yeah, we, we'd like to use one of your tents. Then he would be getting uh, feedback from them when they went out onto the big mountains. So it was that kind of a loop that went on for him. But right. he didn't have a lot of expedition products, right? Hollywood became the main supplier of the expeditions in terms of things like the down gear. Mm. Hollywood became known as the best down gear, incredible expedition parkas, this thick, <laughs> and down mittens, 
like you wouldn't believe, gigantic, huge down mittens. Uh, that was something that Jerry didn't attempt to uh, compete in. Right. It seemed like he was focused mostly on the gear. They they started to dabble in down jackets in the early 60s. Yeah, they um, had some of those, yes. Mm-hmm. But but and now you know currently it, it's a very different company now than what it was. It seems like it's all it's all purely apparel. Um, it, it's kind of the current iteration of of the Jerry brand, and we'll get into that a little bit as well. Um, Fifty eight, they opened their first store in Boulder, which it was a little later than that. Okay, a little yeah, bit later. Yeah, it was closer to nineteen sixty. Oh, okay. Um, I, you know, I want to say that. Um, Beyond the gear itself, um, I think that uh, Jerry's uh, uh, key contributions um, were philosophies, philosophies. And the two main ones were ultralight gear and basically the, the very beginning of the Leave No Trace movement. This is one of his booklets that he distributed for free all over the United States and all the yeah. stores that carried his brand and he'd go to those stores and give talks distributed all these things for free this is uh, how to camp and leave no trace uh this one is really all about ultralight backpacking they didn't have all the modern fabrics and so forth but uh he believed that a family could go out into the wilderness backpacking and nobody would carry more than 20 pounds, even the, uh, even the leader. Right. The children carried 12 to 15 pounds. And he had all the gear for that and, and had designed tents and so forth uh, so that all of it came in at that kind of a weight. And his philosophy was uh, different than hardcore climber philosophy. Right. It was family. Let's get everybody out. Right. That they have to enjoy it. Right. So around that same time, they create the kitty carrier. So, you know, backpack frame, little frame pack that, that you could put your, your child in the back and, and carry him around. Jerry Cunningham and his wife, Anne, had children and they were trying to work a business up in the mountains all by themselves. So when they started having those children, they had issues with, well, how do we continue all of our outdoor activities and our work? And so they took the, the concept of a child pack like the uh, Native Americans had used and put modern materials into it. And it gradually evolved over several years. And they called them eventually the kitty packs. And they were using modern nylon and a suspension system and uh, aluminum, unlike, of course, the Native Americans. So... Uh, they called them the kitty packs, and they became so popular that they became kind of a pain in the rear to the main business of climbing and tents and sleeping bags. So they spun it off to a good friend of theirs from Antioch College, Meg Hansen. And she took that over and for many, many years made a big success of it. I met Meg when I was in uh, Boulder, Colorado, and had a nice little talk with her. Uh, the whole company is now folded up like all of Jerry did eventually. 
it's it's interesting that the the products um, corresponded with these these publications that he was putting out, and I it, I, I agree that he was a pioneer in that way, recognizing that not everyone's going to know how to do all this stuff. You know, people need to be educated, and and I think we see that there's a way to relate that to now. We still see that, and and I, maybe that influence has been felt, maybe not consciously by brands, but you see brands out there are trying to educate people on how to experience the outdoors. I don't know if you've seen that. And and I think you could probably attribute that back to Jerry and maybe people have come up about it other, other ways, but was he kind of the first to pioneer that and realize, well, I can make the gear, but if people don't know how to use it or don't know that they can go outside, then they're not going to come buy the gear. Right. And, and just, you know, obviously the benefits mm-hmm. in general of just going outside. If your feet are cold, put your hat on. Yeah. Of course that was taught in all kind of survival schools, boy scouts, year after year after year and year it's true well so as you say it's it's a matter of educating uh the public about the use of this stuff not just cranking out down jackets mm-hmm. this guy had many visions and he wanted to share them with um not just climbers but families common people he wanted to uh, get people out there and he had an environmental vision as well uh not just leave no trace per se but uh a vision that was environmental in terms of say the first earth day um was i think it was this one out of camp and leave no trace he consciously produces in time for the first earth day um this little stove there's a fuel hose here and a burner and it all goes in this tiny little package this has been modified so it can use modern fuel canisters, but uh, the fuel canisters that uh, they used at the time uh, had stamped on, on them, bring me back and get whatever it was at the time, a dollar refund or something. Hmm. Bring them back to the Jerry store and you'll, you'll, you're encouraged to do the right thing. So uh, that, was, that was Jerry. It seemed like in... In so many ways, he he innovated products, business models, just a way of thinking. Um, I, I again, I, I love that idea of him. You know, the the company starting, um, the company started focused on creating performance products. You know, at the highest level, but he also realized not everyone's going to be the extremist, and you know, the benefit is just getting outside, however you do it, right? Um, and I see, a, I think we see a lot of brands who are doing that today, right. And take that model of, you know, marketing to the extremist and showing the performance. Um, and, but also meeting the needs of people who just want to get out. Right. And so it seems like most brands, um, out there, modern day brands, you know, have products for the extreme and have products for the lifestyle or, or even just, you know, the amateur or or someone who just wants to get out. Right. I liked what you said about, uh, Jerry Hattie, uh, a vision that people needed to be instructed Mm -hmm. and educated. And it's a tough challenge. Uh, It's so easy to just sell the products. Um, I had this personal experience with my, uh, my uh, oldest son at one point, he uh, had been at college and suddenly he writes me an email. Oh, some friends and I want to go camping. Um, and this is over Christmas break in the mountains of Washington. 
okay, they're going to get rained on or snowed on and the weather's going to be terrible, right? Yeah. So he said, I need some gear. I need to borrow some gear. So he came over and instead of just handing him packs, sleeping bags, stoves, etc., um, it turned out he didn't really know how to use these things. So he started asking a few intelligent questions. Next thing you know, we spent the entire morning. And when he left, he said, how did you know, how do you know all these things? And if you think about that, how do you know tie knots? How do you know all kinds of things about how to tie up a pair of boots just right? How do you know waterproofing boots? How do you, how, how do you know all this stuff? Well, uh, I've been very pleased to see sometimes it's the companies, but often it's users who get on YouTube and put out actual videos saying, this is how you actually use these things, or this is how you actually stake down a tent properly in high winds. So anyway, that's a little bit of a diversion there, but no, I, I think it's great. And I think, you know, it's not always brands that are going to take that role of the educator, right? Like Jerry did. Um, and, and it, it, it goes to, to other consumers, right? And we're seeing a lot of that where, where just individuals are, are trying to educate other people on, on how to get out and, and how to do it right. You know, uh, when, I guess just for, for me, when, when did Jerry really hit its stride? When did the company start to become known to to the public i you know it was known to the mountaineers and the extremists and you know when he was working with the these expeditions um you know kind of the extreme users when did the company start to to be known to the general public was it when the publications were coming out i, I know that you know the olympics had had an influence on that when some jerry coats were seen nationwide on tv um in 64 um, what helped propel the brand forward to the, to the public? And when did it really start to gain steam? Well, now that actually was one of the uh, key events in the company becoming more visible in public. The uh, so-called Jerry Slope Coat, which was this very long garment. Uh, looks very retro now, but uh, yeah, and all the people on the uh, ski committee, U.S. Ski Committee, were wearing them on TV. Um, prior to that, uh, in the late 50s, uh, Jerry hired a woman named Julie Johnson, not, no relation to me, uh, to be a sewer for him. And she worked primarily on, on their mountain tents, sewing them up in, in, in her little apartment with her husband, Dale. And after a while, Dale got sort of sucked into it, too. He was trained as a geologist. Jerry had a a, um, an interest in teaching people how to make gear. He had been producing books, little books, maybe 50 pages long, uh, how to make gear, how to make tents, how to make sleeping bags. And Dale felt the books weren't at all user-friendly and eventually went on to create Frostline kits about six years later. Uh, but right in there, there started to be new creative energy, not just so much Jerry doing everything. Uh, you had Dale Johnson, a talented designer. Uh, you had uh, bringing in um, a guy named George Lamb, 
who had the only uh, walking foot sewing machine who could sew real heavy leather and things uh, coming in and helping out. And this guy, um, Dale, uh, and also um, Lamb, both of those guys have big interest in clothing and they started developing a whole line of uh, downhill ski products, which uh, Jerry wasn't all that interested in, but he let them do their thing. And that, of course, led to this slope coat, 1964 Olympics. And gradually, uh, Jerry started becoming uh, less an expedition company and more a, oh, Jerry makes uh, downhill ski coats. Yeah, almost, more of, a, almost a, more of a fashion company in a way. And, and then when Jerry uh, left uh, the company in 1970, uh, what was left of the company basically dropped all the climbing stuff and, and started just basically producing uh, downhill ski stuff. Right. So that um, you, we, we posted a, a picture of the 1971 catalog and you, you jumped on Instagram and commented and said that that was the first catalog that he wasn't a part of. Yeah. Um, and it was a boring looking cover. <laughs> yeah. Um, so why did he leave? Why did he step away? He uh, ran into financial difficulties um, right around 1966, where he had uh, he had gotten kind of over, well, not really overextended. There was something that happened in the it, 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 with a per, uh, big producer that he was working with, and a big shipment, and he was in debt for it to 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 get it. And all of a sudden, his credit line got canceled, and it was just a a mess, just a huge mess. And he wrote quite a bit about it in his biography. Uh, and he reluctantly uh, got drawn into a relationship with Dick Olson, um, a guy who uh, was very involved in uh, the creation of Aspen. And then he, he got was starting to get diluted because now he's a part of this entity called Colorado Outdoor Mountain Sports and uh, over the next few years it got to be more of a now he's part of a, like some bigger company thing and he wasn't so sure about that and eventually the company was expanding and they they uh, wanted him to uh, move into Denver and uh, occupy a position in this outdoor sports company and uh, Jerry and his wife tried it they moved into a skyscraper in Denver and uh, within a very short while Jerry um, found it unacceptable and quit the company he said that he'd uh, uh, attend meetings with people with ties and he had his product ideas and he felt like he wasn't getting listened to and he just basically said forget this noise and left and that mm. was that he what, never looked back where did that take him down down there what i guess what time period was that um he I left in the 70s okay well, and now what did he do for the next few decades he ended up passing away in 2010 um what did he do for those next next few years post well, Jerry life? Yeah, it's it's little known, but uh, even though he lived in the mountains of Colorado, he was always a, a big sailor. Uh, he had connections uh, that were far outside of Colorado. 
down in the Southwest, and he, he got involved in uh, the state of Arizona uh, in an environmental program, maybe one of the first in the nation. Uh, energy conservation was his big deal there under mm-hmm. Bruce Babbitt, the governor, Bruce Babbitt. Um, and he was sailing. He was always sailing once he got down there in the uh, Gulf of Mexico. All right. Baja California. And he discovered a need for, for charts, sailing charts. And he would spend months cruising down there, creating these custom sailing charts and selling those, which became what he did. And then 92, he was recognized by, by the Outdoor Industry Association. And then kind of fast forwarding, um, it passes away in, of all places, Patagonia, Arizona. What a name. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Um, what, I guess before I touch on his legacy, um, to kind of wrap it up, uh, any other influential alumni that came out of, of the Jerry experience or were in that circle? You mentioned Dale Johnson went on to, to start Frostline Kits. Roy and Alice Holubar were kind of in that circle, you know, around that same time yeah. in, the, in the late 40s um, and on. Who else was kind of in that in his orbit that was influenced George uh, by Lamb. the company? George Lamb um, went on to found a company called Alps Sport in Boulder, which uh, then got tied into um, another company. Um, I, I see the little Idlevice flower that was their brand, and then he moved out of that and, and had a company called Camp Seven. Uh, in the early 70s, and then he eventually went in into having a a Western saddle uh, making company. <laughs> uh, yeah, so those would be the main people that that he influenced. Right. Um, what What do you think Jerry thought his legacy was? A lot of these people don't think of their own legacy or their own history in those terms, but you know, reflecting back on his time, did he share with you kind of what he thought of, of that whole journey and experience and starting this company and his influence? Did, did he fully recognize the impact that he had? Um, what, were, what were his thoughts on, on his, his time and, and his work? By the time that I was uh, talking to him in 2006, uh, up through the end, uh, he, um, he had moved so far past all of that that it was like ancient history to him Mm. um he valued it um but he didn't have a big ego he never did uh thinking of himself as some great pioneer who'd done all these great things that that just was not him um so I would have to say that um, even though he came out of gear retirement, you might say to do the 1992 thing, uh, he was out of it. He just was out of it. He knew he'd done some valuable things and uh, yet he had moved out of it. He wasn't, uh, by the time I was talking to him, he wasn't a backpacker anymore. He wasn't a climber anymore. He was a sailor. He lived in a, 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 a solar home that he had uh, built himself uh, uh, up in the mountains there. 
and uh, that that is how I would have to characterize him. Right. Um, regarding the company itself, um, you know, he sold it in '70. It looks like it changed hands a couple of different times. You know, between a few different parent companies, um, Outdoor yes. Sports Industries, and then Amorex Group, and and now, um, interestingly enough, the the brand has has been revived. I imagine at, at a time there, it had kind of just disappeared in the two thousands, um, and then has been revived in in twenty ten. You know, under a studio out of New York, Studio Ray looks like, and they've Zero revived exposure, the brand. Studio Ray, um, uh, yeah, and I, I helped them develop their timeline. Mm-hmm. Of, of Jerry. Um, yeah, they have uh, attempted to find a niche for the brand and uh, what they've got out of it apparently is uh, a brand of basically down jackets made in Asia. Uh, it's good to see Jerry back. Uh, there were other efforts to revive it. There was a Swedish company that turned out stuff under the Jerry label for a while, maybe bootleg. I don't know. Um, we'll talk more in a later podcast about the, the Holly Bar brand, which I think the revival of that has been much more substantial and much right. more kind of worth following. Right. That that whole question of brand revivals is really interesting, especially as I, you know, we talked in the last podcast. There's so many of these trademarks, so many of these beloved brands that you know, eventually the founder's no longer a part of the, of the company and, and the brand disappears and those trademarks are floating around there, um, you know, somewhere. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad that there's people uh, like the team behind Holy Bar and, and Jerry, it's, it's good to at least see the name back out there, even if the company doesn't necessarily, you know, isn't, you know, maybe as true to the heritage or, or, you know, doing the same things that, that they were doing in the past. It's at least nice to see the brand around and hopefully those brands, um, can, uh, can honor that legacy. Um, yeah, yeah. They've, they, well, both of them, Jerry and Holly Bar, have made a big effort to try to, uh, honor their heritage. So just to, to kind of wrap up, uh, what what would you say are the lasting impacts of Jerry Mountain Equipment? In the in the history book of gear development, uh, there are so many really substantial things. Uh, obviously, most of the designs, like the tents and sleeping bags and so forth that he did, they've all been surpassed now by modern designs new fabrics and so forth, um, seam sealing techniques that didn't exist. But uh, to me, the lasting things are uh, his commitment to a philosophy, leave no trace, get out and enjoy it as a family, appreciate the wilderness, preserve it, those are the things that I see as his main lasting and really important legacies. Right. No, that's great. Do you, do you have any other final thoughts, anything that you feel like we missed that, that we ought to mention about the company, about the history, about Jerry as a, as a person, 
Um, anything that we didn't touch on that you want to include? Um, no, just really uh, to refine the point about how Jerry left his company. Um, as I indicated, starting in about 1966, he sort of got sucked into, you might say, the corporate world and being beholden to, a, to, to kind of an owner. And for him, that led to him giving it up, right? In other companies that we might discuss in the future, the, the move was um, also terrible. Mm. Um, and, and in a few, it was successful. So right. we'll talk more about those in future episodes. Yeah. There's kind of a pattern there. It would be interesting to compare, you know, which companies succeeded by doing that and which ones did not. Um, w- if someone wants to learn more about Jerry, you mentioned a biography that's out there that he wrote. It's not out there. Oh, it's, it's not, not out there. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, no, uh, <clears throat> Let's see here. Jerry sent me this about 2007. Um, it's a PDF biography that uh, he and his, uh, his two boys put together, and it has a ton of stuff that isn't related directly to his gear. There are very important sections about the company and so forth, too, but uh, it's full of pictures. Jerry was uh, a historian. Uh, I think his father and the photography business had taught him. He always took pictures. He always archived his pictures. He had a full selection of of the history uh, in pictures and also in in words and documents. So um, that, that, of course, allowed me to do the job that I could do because he had been so good with that. Right. So, so if people do want to learn more about Jerry, about the company, about the history, we'll link to uh, the piece that you wrote on history of gear website um, to, to the Jerry, the, the new iteration of the company. They've got a great timeline that you helped create. Um, we'll link to that as well. Um, but it, it's great to dive into this history. It's, it's nice to learn about someone so influential that um, maybe people, even in this industry, don't really recognize the impacts, the lasting impacts of, of this, this person and this company. So I appreciate you doing the work um, and spending the time sharing what you've spent the time to learn with all of us. So thanks again for taking time to do this. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. Subscribe and listen for more outdoor stories and content wherever podcasts are found on HighlanderMag.com and each Sunday at 4 p.m. on Aggie Radio, 92.3 FM in Cache Valley.